Uh, thank you, Adam, for reading. That's your quota for the year, so you don't have to read anymore in 2017. Um, but here at Mission, uh, we do have a very high view of Scripture, and we don't want to skip over. That is why we, we read those words, is because we want you to know that what we are preaching comes from God's Word. We are not making it up. We are not making it say something that it doesn't say. So we, we read these words and let God speak for Himself. So, if you've been at mission very long, then some of you are thinking, oh no, we're preaching a whole chapter today. We're going to be here until 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And you would be right. We're going to be here for a while. So, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It should be about the same. So just hang on tight. There's a lot to get to today. But I do think that what we read here is a contextually speaking, is a stern warning to the Pharisees and the scribes. Contextually speaking, on our part, I think it is a stern warning to us here in 2017, but that it is also a scripture filled with much hope because it points to the supremacy and righteousness of Christ, which at Mission Church, we believe every single word of scripture does that. So this is no different here today. But before we get to all of that, we do have to see what does this say. We see the, we see these seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Each one is similar in nature. Each one is sinful in nature. Each one is different in application, and yet the solution and the answer to them all is the same. We will see that in a, a few moments. Now, we will briefly look at these seven separately, and when I say briefly, we really will. These could be separate sermons in and of themselves. This is just what we felt like God was doing as far as planning out our sermon series is to do this all in one chunk. So, over the last several weeks, hopefully you've gotten a good grasp of who the Pharisees are. These are the smart guys in the room. They think they know it all. They, they're the religious elite. We won't go deep into that, but just remember, this is who Jesus is still dealing with. Now, they have been trying to trap Jesus with these questions and these trick questions, and he's been thwarting them to no avail. Have they done anything but make him look smarter and them look stupider? But today, we see Jesus kind of go on the offensive Today, instead of them asking him a question and him answering it a certain way and expertly and masterfully answering his question, he calls them out. They're not saying anything. It seems like they finally ran out of questions, and Jesus is like, all right, now that you're done asking me questions, this is what I have to say to all of you. So that's what we're, we're looking at today. Now, we were going to skip around to a few verses. I will always call out the verse as we are skipping between. It's all in Matthew chapter 23, but we will skip to all of these woes kind of separately and look at them and then look at them as a whole. We'll try to tie a nice, neat little bow on it, hopefully. So, look with me. Verse 3, we see Jesus tell his disciples. So at this point, he's talking to his disciples, warning them about the Pharisees. In just a few verses, we see him shift gears and speak directly to the Pharisees. Now, having said that, let's assume, though, the Pharisees are hearing every word of this, because I, I think that's an easy assumption to make. If he's talking to his disciples and then turns and starts talking to the Pharisees immediately, they're probably within earshot. So all of this is really a rebuke of the scribes and Pharisees and then a warning to his disciples. We have to look at it all that way. But we see Jesus tell his disciples that they can listen to the teaching of the Pharisees because they do, in fact, know the law. They know what it says. They are teaching it correctly, in a sense, because they are preaching the, or teaching the words of the law. However, what they are lacking is the application in their own lives, the execution of the laws that they are proclaiming. So they're saying the words of Scripture and yet not carrying it out themselves. My dad is notorious uh, when I was little for saying 
do as I say, not as I do. Now, this was usually when he was driving the four-wheeler way faster than what he would allow me to drive it, and I'd say, hey, Dad, you tell me not to go 50 miles per hour over that and jump over that. Yeah, do as I say, not as I do, son. Or when he's using a tool that he's not supposed to use that way, he's warned me, don't use, that's how tools get broken, son. And yet, I see him using the back end of a screwdriver to hammer something in. We've all been there because can't reach the hammer. And he tells me, do as I say, not as I do. So I learned at a young age what that meant. This is what Jesus is saying about the Pharisees and scribes here. He is saying they're teaching the right things. They are not doing the right things. They know stuff. They're not doing stuff. It's in short, right? All right, skip down. Verse 4. He tells them that the Pharisees also tie up heavy burdens on their followers. This means that they were adding to the law. They were taking what the law said and extending it farther than it was meant to go. We see this a lot even in churches today. You have to wear certain clothes to church. You can't cut your hair. Don't drink caffeine. All of these rules that are not necessarily found in Scripture, that they have twisted Scripture to say something and to extend farther than what Scripture was really meant to say. They're adding to the law. But worse than that, as we have just seen in verse 3, they're not even carrying out the additional demands that they are placing on people. They're not doing them themselves. They're just saying, this is what you should do. If you want to be as holy as we are, this is what you should do. You should do these extra rules and follow them, but they're not even doing them themselves. Hence, being called hypocrites over and over. It says they are not willing to move a finger to do the same things they are requiring of others to do. Verse 5, he says that their motivation for obedience was simply to be seen by others. Now, this is not a new development. This is not... This has been a no-no since Jesus started ministering, right? In Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, we spent much of our time there a few months ago. Matthew 6, 1, it says, Do not practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them, because that will be your only reward for those actions. It is clear that our motivations do matter. If there's anything that I can say has been the overarching theme of Matthew since we started this sermon series, as an application for us is that our heart matters. It's not our actions that matter as much as why we are doing something, our motivations for obedience. So let's discuss that for just a second. You see, we know the right answer. If we've been in church very long, if you've heard preaching very long, you know the right answer is what, what's your motivation for doing things? God's glory, right? We know, we know to say those words. I'm living for Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that the love of God is what controls us or compels us. So because we love God so much, we should be obedient. We should do that. That should be our motivation. And that is the correct answer. That is absolutely correct. I do two counselings a day, at least, at, at Hope House for our program living guys. And I tell them from the beginning, their first day there, I say, look, you've heard of a one-trick pony. I'm about a five-trick pony because you're going to hear me say the same five things to you for a year if you make it a year. So... You're going to hear me repeat these things over and over, not because I don't think you don't understand them, not because I don't think you agree with them, but because we need reminders. I need reminders, so I'm going to say it to you to remind myself and to remind you. And one of those things that they probably hear the most is that we have to set our target on Jesus. The bullseye of our lives has to be Jesus. The motivation of what we are doing has to be Jesus. Now, the reason for that is because anything else that we are aiming for, if that is our target, can be taken away or changed. Sadly, children can die. 
marriages can end. Money can be spent. Jobs can be lost. If we are setting our target on these things and that is taken away, then what happens to our motivation to live any certain way or to do anything? And I ask them, what is the only motivation that we can set, the only target we can set that cannot be changed? The answer is Jesus. Jesus is the only thing that fits that description. So we know the right answer. We know that this is what we should say and do, is that Jesus and his glory is why I do anything. But what about the days where we really don't want to do that? We have to look to other things to motivate us. And we all have those days. And God gives us secondary motivations in Scripture. Fear, punishment, joy, reward. Living this way will just make your life better a lot of times. We see that in the Proverbs wisdom, right? This will help you just be or have a better life if you will just look. Now, that Christianity doesn't say that you will always have a better life, but if you will just follow these rules, things seem to go better, right? There are secondary motivations in Scripture for those days, for those days where you don't really want to live for Jesus, but, man, I really want to quit my job, but I have bills to pay, right? That's a secondary motivation. Man, my wife is driving me crazy, but I'm going to stay with her, so let's work this through, right? Let's, let's get this. It's not that I love you so much right now, because honestly, you're getting on my nerves. This is usually the wife's talking, actually, but whatever. So, but I'm going to stay with you because I've made an oath. I've made a covenant with you. Let's work this out. Let's pray this out. Let's see what it is. Secondary motivations are in Scripture. Pride and love of self is never an acceptable one of those. Not one time in Scripture does God give us a secondary motivation of just do this for yourself. Stick with it long enough for you and get back to love for Christ. Never once in Scripture is it anything but rebuked. Pride is a killer, and we have to understand that. So we have to understand our motivations for why we are doing things. And here's the the best part of what I just preached to you, is that I'm struggling with it right now. So if you want a hypocrite, look no further. I'm right here. Because every time I preach, and I'm not going to speak for every pastor, but I would guess that every pastor at least some points struggle with this I want to deliver a good message for myself because I don't want to look silly in front of people I don't want people to go away from there man that was terrible here's the even worse part (laughs) if there is a worse part is there's nothing that you guys can do to help me with this because no matter how you guys react I'm gonna continue struggling with this because if you give me a compliment afterward I'm going to start letting that go to my head and be like, that was pretty good, wasn't it? I did say that one thing that was pretty awesome, and then, you know, I connected it to the, and then, and I'm going to start replaying things I said in my head. You laughed at my joke, which is rare, but you laughed at my joke. Whatever, it connected, it really went well. Or, best part, you don't say anything, and then I go home, why does Eric even let me do this anymore? I'm clearly not good at it. No one cared. No one was listening. I know someone was asleep. I won't name names, but I know they were sleeping. They weren't listening to anything I said. Why do I even keep doing this? There's nothing you can do to help me. So after church today, just do whatever you're going to do anyway because literally it doesn't matter. But here's the thing is both options are making it too much about me. Every week that I preach, or every week, period, but every week that I preach, especially, as we're singing the last song, I am back there praying, God, make this about you. 
I don't want this to be about me, and yet I'm, I'm doing it right now as I'm rebuking myself for it. I want this to connect. I want this message that I'm preaching right now. I just prayed it 10 minutes ago. And yet we still struggle this because we are so self-centered as humans. And God is calling us to a different way. He is making it clear here that obedience matters. Motivations for obedience also matter. This means obeying God's commands is actually doubly hard because we have to obey them and obey them for the right reasons. This makes our need for someone to do that for us all that much more critical. We'll see that here in just a few moments. All right, moving forward, verse 13, we see Jesus telling these men that the way they are teaching and living is not only going to keep themselves out of the kingdom, but it is going to lead others astray, lead others to believe false teaching and to believe, believe things that are not true, and it is going to shut the doors to the kingdom on them as well. This is the epitome of of pride and self-centeredness not allowing you to care what happens to other people. They want to look good. They want to be the center of attention so much that they don't care about the consequences really for themselves, but even for those that are, they are leading astray. They are teaching for personal gain and, and not worrying about what ramifications it may have for others. The next section is a little weird, verses 16 through 22. Uh, we see that the Pharisees are swearing oaths by things, right? They're swearing, well, I swear on this and I swear on that. We do this kind of in, script, or in, in today's time as well, just in a little different way. But you hear people, when people really want you to believe what they're saying, what do they say? Man, I swear on my life that this is true, right? Or I swear on my so-and-so's grave. Right? I swear on my kids that I'm not lying to you right now, right? They want you to really, really believe what you say. The Pharisees were no different. What they would do is, they would say, well, I didn't swear on this, so if I don't keep this oath, it's really, the consequences shouldn't be that bad. This is the equivalent of your fingers crossed in middle school, right? You told me that she said that, yeah, my fingers were crossed. So, doesn't even, you can't listen to a word I'm saying. My toes were crossed, right? Um, not shaking on it, right, in middle school. I bet you this, you lose the bet. We didn't shake on that. That doesn't count. I'm not... I'm not living up to that my end of the bet. We didn't shake on it, even though you did make the bet. This is what they are doing. They are swearing on things, and then when they don't keep their oaths, yeah, but it's no big deal. I didn't swear on the altar, or I didn't swear, or I didn't swear on the gift on the altar. Or they are delineating, making, keeping oaths weightier or not weightier. Okay, I know that was weird. Directly after this in verse 23, Jesus tells them they are focusing on the lesser things and neglecting the weightier matters of the law like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They are too busy counting their tally marks, saying, look at all the good things that I did yesterday, or look at all the good things I'm doing today, or look at all of these good things that I've done for people. They are showing how holy they are instead of doing what really matters and loving people and ministering to people and showing justice and mercy and faithfulness to people. It says that they are putting on a show with the phylacteries and the fringes of their garments. So phylacteries are just these little leather boxes that they would tie around their arms or on their foreheads. It's taking Scripture literally to, put, to bind them on your arms and foreheads, right? The bigger the box, the more Scriptures you had in it. It's the equivalent of what I used to do as a kid when VBS time came around. You got prizes for memorizing Scripture, I'm going to memorize as many of those bad boys as I can, right? 
So I'm going to quote these back to my teacher. She's going to give me my prize. I'm going to go on about my way. How many of those scriptures did I actually pay attention to or dissect or even think about what they actually said? Big fat zero. Not one time did I really, what is this really saying? It could have been gibberish. It could have been another language. As long as I could repeat it and get my prize, that's all I cared about. And that is what we are seeing here with the Pharisees. They want to make sure people see them carrying out many small things so they, they can point to those small things and look holier instead of taking the time and the pain that it takes to walk with someone, to walk arm in arm with someone, to show justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And then a couple verses later in verse 25, Jesus uses the inside of the cup analogy to rebuke them for looking good on the outside, being rotten and wretched on the inside. At my house, when I wash the dishes, which happens more than you might, I know what you are thinking, it happens more than you might think, okay? When I wash the dishes, I get in trouble with my wife more often for not washing the outside of the dish. My way of thinking, and I'm venturing to guess most ways of all the men in this room, is what got dirty? The inside of the dish. That's where the food was, right? I don't care. The outside shouldn't be that dirty. I wave the rag around it and move on with life, right? And so many times my wife has been like, did you wash this? Yeah, look at it. She flips it over and I'm like, eh, maybe, maybe I missed a spot or two, okay? That spaghetti was already, that, I didn't do that, right? So it, we, I didn't realize how much like Jesus I was until this week, washing only the inside of the dish. But Jesus has made it very clear in many places in Scripture that, especially in the book of Matthew, that the inside does matter. The heart behind our actions matter. I know I'm saying that over and over, but Jesus says it over and over. It matters why we are doing things. Sin usually, for most Christians, resides more internally than outward, externally. It's usually in here. It's usually in here. Because when you've been a Christian for a while, you know how to do the big ones right. Or not do the big ones right. You know how to play the part well enough to keep those in check but it's up here on a daily basis. It's when you get frustrated or when you get mad at someone or when someone wrongs you in some way or life just doesn't go the way you wanted it to go. And then we start thinking things and our heart turns dark and we start feeling things that we shouldn't feel. That's where most sin resides for us. And God is saying we got to clean that up too. And then lastly in verse 27, he re reiterates that point, but he makes it a little more harsh. He compares them to whitewashed tombs that look gorgeous on the outside but are filled with death. This is what legalism brings. This is what when you proclaim a message of obey these rules and God will love you, what does it bring? Death. They are filled with death. When you obey without your heart fully following Jesus, it is leading to death and you are leading yourself and others when you proclaim that message to death. We are to be life-giving. We are to be breathing life into ourselves and to others through the power of the cross. Jesus is telling his disciples, he is telling us, this is one of his very last lessons on earth. This is one of the last times he's going to really teach his disciples what to do. And he is telling them, you must be diligent to not be like these men. You must be diligent in pursuing holiness for the right reasons. For love of me, for my glory, for my majesty, not for yourselves. You cannot conform to this false teachings 
You must distance yourselves from this type of teaching, from this legalistic, earn your way to heaven, earn your salvation, merit your forgiveness, mercy, and grace. He is telling them that we cannot be like them. As soon as we start making it about us, we're heading down the wrong path. And here's the, the bad news before the good news. Who are we in this story? I hope Mission Church has made it clear. We're never Jesus, so let's rule that one out. We're never Jesus when we're trying to insert ourselves into the story. I would like to think we are the disciples listening intently to Jesus' words. Oh, this is how we're supposed to do it? Okay, well, let's carry that out for the rest of our lives, faithfully and be holy and be humble and be all of these things. But in reality, we are the scribes and the Pharisees. We are the hypocrites. We are the ones that drift away from the truth and when we begin to drift, we drift towards making it all about us. It's every person that has ever lived natural bent to follow after themselves, to be self-centered, to, to focus on themselves too much, to look out for number one. It's our natural tendency. We make choosing a church all about us. We make our good deeds all about us. We make the credit we get for those good deeds all about us. We make ourselves look smarter than we really are by memorizing a few things that make us look smart in certain groups, right? We play the part in different groups that we're in. Here's one. We try to make our marriage look perfect when we come to church because heaven forbid our church knows that we just argued the whole way here. Or we try to be the best parents we can to our children so that our children behave in front of people so that they think, man, what a great parent Justin must be. What a great parent he is. He must really love his child. I may be ignoring her 23 hours a day when I'm at home, but when I'm here, I'm paying close attention. Hopefully I'm not doing that. I'm not confessing my sin here. But we do these things. We want to look good in front of people, so we put on a show. See, remember back to earlier in the sermon series, we learned about being salt and light, right? So this is living out our faith. This is being salt and light. And I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. But Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that... Those are the, some of the most important words in Scripture. Anytime you get to a point that says, so that, pay attention to what it says next. It says, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is why we put on a show. Not because we're faking it, because we truly love Jesus so much. We want to make Him look good. Make His glory more palatable in our lives. More real in our lives. So we obey. We are salt and light so that people will give God the glory. Not so they will give us the glory. And too many times we want to cast judgment on sinners who are living fully outside of the will of God, right? They're doing the big sins. They're doing these outward sins that we can totally see. They're not living according to Christ's work. How dare they live that way? And then we look at ourselves, and the only reason we're living in His will is so that other people will think that we are living inside His will. And that means we are just as much outside of His will as the people that are outwardly outside of His will. God does not make two different categories of wrongness or that his wrath will be poured out upon. It doesn't say that obedience for our own sake and our own pride is wrong and that disobedience is wronger. 
It doesn't say that anywhere. He states that both are wrong and subject to his wrath. So whether you're a goody two-shoes for your own reasons or you're a rebel without a cause over here, you are outside of his will. You are living sinfully against the holy God and he has to address it. He's teaching his disciples while he still has time to do so to distance yourself from these men so that you can multiply your teaching. Multiply this correct teaching, the correct gospel of salvation, not by works but of faith. He is equipping them so that they can go and proclaim this message out. We see that later in Matthew 23. He's talking about sending them out, right? Sending them with this message. And he wants to equip them to know that this message that the hypocrites, the Pharisees, the scribes are teaching is not the one I'm sending you with. But we have to understand in these passages that we are the hypocrites. We are the ones who say one thing and do another. I've told this story many times before, so just in short, there's a guy I've shared the gospel with numerous times. I've invited him to church numerous times. And every time he says, well, I'm a Christian, I read my Bible, I'm just not going to go to church because it's full of hypocrites. And I always say to him, come on down to mission, we've got room for one more. Because you're going to find the exact same thing at mission church. You're right, and that's why we need Jesus. See, realizing and admitting that we are the very hypocrites that Jesus is calling out here, is only half the battle. It's G.I. Joe. Knowing is half the battle, right? It's, we gotta, what do we do now that we know we are these hypocrites? See, because that's the bad news, is we are those hypocrites. So what do we do about it? Jesus is clearly rebuking these hypocrites. He's, in essence, told them they're on their way to hell. And now we're realizing, wait, I, Jesus is talking to me right there because I'm hypocritical in my, in my life. And the good news is, that the answer is right here in the middle of these passages. Jesus gives us the answer to all of these woes, all of the hypocrisy, all of the living for ourselves, all of the pride. Look at verse 12. It says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now the first thing that may stand out to you, or, or that stood out to me at least, is that no matter what, every single person that ever lives on the face of this planet is going to be humbled. So you're either going to do it willingly and follow after Jesus and be obedient to his commands because you see his worth and you see that you are not worth that. Or when he returns and you've denied him all of this time, he's going to humble you because then you're going to see it and you're going to have no choice. Everyone will be humbled. You see, many theologians would agree that pride is the ultimate sin. Not that it's any worse than any other sin. Not that it's any more unforgivable than any other sin. But that as John Stott, pastor, writer, theologian, puts it, it is the essence of all sin. All sin is rooted in and stems from a pride, a self-centeredness, a looking out for myself. He states also that at every stage of Christian development and in every sphere of Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. And according to Matthew 23 and many other places, I think Jesus would agree with that. I think Jesus would agree that pride takes so many different forms and can attack us from so many different angles that we don't even see coming. Is that it, sin, almost all sin, if not all sin, is rooted in that, in pride. Most people define pride as this haughty, arrogant, cocky sort of thing. And I do think that's absolutely part of pride. I just think that definition is too narrow. Pride defined by Merriam-Webster 
is a feeling or deep pleasure of satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. See, we see in Matthew 23 this exact thing. These Pharisees are proud of themselves for all of these holy things that they are doing so that others may see. And we see so many warnings against pride and thinking too highly of ourselves and really just thinking of ourselves too much, period. It's not even thinking that I'm great. It's just wondering if I'm great because you're focused on yourself all the time. How did that go? Was I good at this? Was that terrible? Oh, I am terrible. All of that is pride because it's all focusing on ourselves. And the right reason for obedience, the right view of ourselves is to look at ourselves in light of who God is. You see, God must be exalted and we must be humbled in order to gain the right motivation for obedience. John 3.30 says, He must increase, I must decrease. It's not he must increase and I get to stay the same. It's not we can increase together and we can, you know, God's up here still and I'm here, but we get to go with the same. No, it's the more we view God, the higher he gets. The more we view ourselves, the more we realize how far from that mark we truly are. And that humbles us and gives us the right motivation for our obedience. See, pride leads to so much sin. C.J. Mahaney is a pastor in Louisville now. Uh, he's written many books um, most of them are very accessible. I, I actually commend him much as a writer because his books are easy to read. So if you find any of his books, I can almost guarantee they're good. He wrote one on humility. Conveniently, it was titled Humility. So if you need to find it, there's the title. But he defines pride this way, and I love this definition because I think this gets to the root of this sin. It says, Pride is when sinful humans aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on him. To me, this definition shows pride for exactly what it is. It is ultimately telling God, you don't know best, I know best. Look at how sin entered the world. How did the serpent tempt Eve? He didn't just say, look at this apple, isn't it nice? If it was even an apple. Look at this fruit, it's nice, it's worth eating. What did he say? It's worth eating and this will make you like God. This will make you know things that God, only God knows. You'll get to know, you'll get to be like God. And that was enough. That's what Eve and Adam both wanted. See, pride can blind us from the truth. And the truth of God's word in 1 John 5 says that God's commands, this is where we find joy. This is where we find satisfaction in God's commands. They are not burdensome. This is how Jesus can say my yoke is easy and my burden is light because when we truly obey, our joy is found in his commands. Even when things don't go our way, we can still find our joy in following and being obedient to Jesus. See, we must humble ourselves in light of the gospel, in the light of the character and nature of Christ in order to surrender our lives to his commands. Even when we don't like them or understand them, but understanding that we find our joy in following after him because he is worthy and we are not. See, def humility defined by Merriam-Webster is a modest or low view of one's own importance. Notice this does not say a modest or low view of yourself. You don't have to be self-deprecating to be humble. That's also pride because, again, you're just focusing on yourself all the time. This is not low self-esteem, whatever that is. This is a modest and low view of our importance. How important we are in the view of all of creation. 
We must rightly view ourselves and realize we are not the center of creation. We are not even the center of the world we have created. My wife loves me very much. She does not think about me nearly as much as I probably think that she does. And that definitely applies for people I'm not married to. People don't think about you nearly as much as you think they are. They're not looking at you nearly as much as you think they are. They don't care about you nearly as much as you think they do. And yet, all the time, it's rattling around in here. How does this look? I almost changed clothes today because I was like, I don't know if this looks right. And then I ran out of time and just left. And I still don't know if it looks right. And hopefully my answer is I don't care. But this is what we do, right? We wonder. Well, guaranteed tomorrow I'd ask y'all what I wore today. Y'all be like, I don't know, a shirt and some pants. Hopefully some shoes. I don't no one thinks about us nearly as much as we think we do. We are not the center of the world. We must rightly view ourselves as holy and completely dependent upon God who is sustaining us. It is only then that we can see ourselves for who we truly are and humble ourselves in light of who God is. This can only be done when we rightly view Christ. When we see the Christ revealed to us in Scripture. When we see the truth of God's Word in what it says about us and about our sin. When we see the fact that because of our sin, our personal sin, Jesus had to come and die in our place, suffering horrendous death and having the Father turn away from Him. Because of our sin, if every human being that ever lived was perfect except for me, Jesus still had to die. We must rightly view ourselves in light of the gospel. And what, especially for the men in this room, but for everyone, what could possibly be more humbling than this sentence? You literally can't do this, so someone is going to come do it for you. That's nails on a chalkboard for most men and probably most women. If I'm doing something my wife has asked me to do and in the middle of it she comes up and goes, well, you can't do this, just let me do it. It's not the greatest day in our house, okay? Let's just put it that way. Just let me struggle, even if, the, even if it's true, just let me struggle through it and figure it out, okay? No one wants to, <laughs> amen, no one wants to hear those words though. You can't do this, someone else is going to do it for you, and that applies to our entire lives. We can't do it, Jesus had to, no matter how good you are, no matter how good you think you are, here's one, no matter how good your intentions are. Because so many times we use that as justification. Well, I, I, my intentions were in the right place. It doesn't matter. You still are sinful. When you are confronted with the truth that despite your best efforts, you were and continue to be incapable of following God's commands well enough to earn you anything but eternity in hell, the only right response is humility. It is to humble yourself in light of Jesus. And this humility only comes in the face of of the gospel and most of us in this room when we're hearing these words we think well I can't I can't pull this off perfectly good you don't have to because you can't you don't have to be righteous you can't you don't have to be holy you can't Jesus is though we have to humble ourselves enough to say that I can't do this so I'm going to lean on Jesus's strength on Jesus' righteousness, on Jesus' holiness, and here's the kicker, on Jesus' humility. Because I'm not even going to pull off this humble thing right enough. I'm going to be hypocritical even in that. 
Look again at these woes. I'm going to fly through these. Okay, but look at these woes again, and then we're going to connect another scripture to them, right? It says, they play, the first one, they place heavy burdens on people. Matthew 11:30. Jesus says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. They do not lift a finger to obey their own demands. 2 Corinthians 5:21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3:13. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Third one, they obey to be seen by others. Jesus numerous times told people not to tell people what they had seen him do because it was not his time because he was being perfectly obedient to God and his timing and following his commands. His obedience was to carry out God's ultimate purpose for his life so he didn't go blasting himself everywhere. Fourth, they shut the door to the kingdom so that others cannot enter. John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Fifth, they condemn those who don't keep oaths, but they don't keep them themselves either. Jesus is our promise keeper. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Sixth, they neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus literally is those things. He doesn't neglect them. He doesn't have to keep himself from neglecting them because he is those things. Too many scriptures to even mention. They are outwardly beautiful, but inwardly wretched. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no form of beauty that we should desire him. And yet, inwardly, he was holy, righteous, and pure. All of the things the Pharisees are trying to look like they are. And lastly, inside they were carrying death with them. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life is literally found nowhere else but in Jesus. See, Jesus is literally the antithesis of all of these things he is calling hypocritical. And this is the greatest news for a room full of hypocrites. It is in that same way that it is his humility that we can be saved because it takes perfect humility to save us. So it is not that we are humble enough to save us. It is not our humility that saves us. So we don't have to fake being humble. People can see through that, just so you know. If you're one of those people, people can see you're faking it. But we don't have to because it is Jesus' humility, the humility that landed him on the cross. And you may have heard this this morning if you were listening, but we're going to read it again. Philippians 2. It says, Let each one of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is Christ's humility that sent him to the cross that saves. It is not our humility and submission to him. It is our humility in light of what we just read. It is our humility that because Jesus had to do that for us, we're pretty worthless. And this doesn't mean we have to walk around, woe is me. It's just looking at life in light of what we just read. And Jesus points us to this at the end of chapter 23 in verses 34 through the end, 39. He tells them that, the Pharisees, that 
I'm going to send these people out to, explain, to proclaim this message and you're going to kill them because you're not going to like it because your pride is not going to let you hear it the right way. Because of their pride, they're going to arrest and prosecute Jesus as well. And he will, in his perfect humility, lay down his life and get this, even for the people he's rebuking right now, if they will turn and put their faith and trust in him, they can be saved. The biggest hypocrites that we can find in Scripture, apparently, because they're called that a bunch of times here, can be saved by Jesus' humility, by Jesus' non-hypocrisy, if they will place their trust and faith in Him. So while this chapter is a stern warning for a room full of hypocrites, it is full of hope. Because ultimately, we can have hope that because even though we are these hypocrites, that we know while we were still sinners, Christ came and died for the ungodly. Christ was willing to give his life knowing we were going to be hypocritical. See, hypocrisy, when laid bare and thrown at the foot of the cross, is just as forgivable as anything else that we know of. And we know that God's grace cannot be extinguished or outran. See, even us being humble is not about us. It is about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. Therefore, this kind of humility that we are called to actually turns into confidence. The humility that comes from looking at Jesus on the cross, doing exactly what we were literally incapable of doing, leads to boldness and confidence. How is that? Because the more we view God in all of His glory, the more we view the resurrected Christ in all of His majesty, the more we remind ourselves of Jesus doing on our behalf what we could not do for ourselves makes us more humble and makes us more worshipful of this Jesus. The humility, this humility, leads to boldness to proclaim that God saves wretched sinners, even hypocrites. We become bold in the gospel. We become bold not in our faith, but in the object of our faith. We can confidently say that God can save sinners, God does save sinners, and God will save sinners. We humble ourselves in the we can't, so Jesus had to. Instead of making us feel less than because of that, it should make our value of Christ go up. We humble ourselves in our only hope, which is the gospel, because it's only the gospel, only because of the gospel that any of God's promises can come to fruition. It is the gospel that is strong enough to overcome our darkness, our sin, any trial, any persecution, and get this, any hypocrisy. See, I am humbled that God would choose to extend His grace to me, that He would humble me in this way, and that He would save me but because I know myself and I know that he has done this, I can be confident that he can do that for anyone. So why would I say no for someone else by not sharing this message with them, by not sharing the gospel with them? That is what the Pharisees were doing and shutting the door on others that would come in. So this is why we humbly submit but this is why we boldly and confidently proclaim that Jesus Christ came to die in the place of hypocrites. That no one is so hypocritical that they cannot be saved if they will humble themselves in light of who Jesus is and beg for his mercy to save them. But how are they to hear if someone does not go and preach the gospel to them? 
And this is what we see at the end of Matthew 23. Jesus is saying, I'm sending my disciples with this message. And that is what he is saying to us in 2017, is go and proclaim this gospel, this message, this Jesus. So you have to ask yourselves, is, will you go? Will I go? Will we, as Mission Church, will we go and boldly proclaim this message? Will we go and proclaim this Jesus? The opposite and antithesis of all of our garbage, of all of our hypocrisy, of all of our sin. Will we humble ourselves so that He may be exalted? Pray with me.